council. Wow. When I hear my own bio, I think, God, I'm getting old. I mean, to do all that stuff, you know. I've never shared a platform with a salamander before. It's a total honor and blessing. Okay, grab this dude. This is great. I'm glad we prayed for the kids tomorrow. Isn't that wonderful? Oof. We got to get these kids in, man. And they're so much more open than the old dudes. And we get them early. Get our own kids praying for the kids in their neighborhoods, the kids in their schools, learning to be priests in the place that God's called them, in the neighborhood and in life. Uh, I just took my two oldest granddaughters. So I got nine grandkids. I took my two oldest. They just turned 12 this last year. We're taking them two at a time. Um, we have a day where we, we celebrate their lives when they turn 12. We throw a party. We tell funny stories about him. We reminisce. We eat crazy amounts of food. And we let them choose the menu for the day. It's their day. They, everyone dresses up. The whole family shows up. Lots of friends, few enemies. We're going to make sure that we really bless these precious young ones coming up through because it's our legacy. It's our future. And then we say, okay, now here's the deal. Now that you're in between girl and woman... We're now, because I got eight granddaughters, and then I have one little, poor little grandson at the very end. <laughs> poor guy, Isaac. And um, he's a beautiful kid, and he holds his own, let me tell you. He's great with his girls. Um, we sit down, Oman Oji, that's grandma and grandpa. Oji-san's the Japanese word for grandfather. We're going to take you to Japan, and we're going to introduce you to the Peterson family legacy. So we just got back two days ago. From seven days with the girls, my wife and I took the girls around, everything from showing them what we do, meeting a lot of our friends who are church planning, to Mickey Mouse and Disneyland. You know, you got to do the whole deal. And uh, our future is in these children. The minds and the hearts of these kids are being assaulted. And we get an opportunity to introduce them to the Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, they're not going to grow up and be ministers someday. They're, they can be ministers now. Amen? Oh, how fun is it? It's a lot more fun when they get activated by God and the Spirit of the Lord starts moving in on them and starts giving them dreams and visions and destiny starts setting into their lives. And they set themselves apart for Jesus because of the visitation of the Lord in their lives. Um. I'm going to go for it tonight. I hope that's all right with you. We're going to do 50 years in one hour. You think that's possible? I'm kind of a big picture guy. I love to give the overview. And so here we go. Slide number one. It's called, I'm going to call this the tapestry. And a tapestry, I, I love to weave. I used to have a four harness, harness jack loom. I love selecting wools and threads, and I love putting them in critting designs. You use a combination of these, what's called heddles, and a combination of, um, there's four of them on a four harness jack loom, and they, they, they go up and down differently. You use petals to choose how the patterns are selected. And uh, you can 
you can weave all sorts of wild threads and wools and everything with knobs and colors. And, it be, and all of a sudden, you start throwing the shuttlecock across. It goes across, and it goes back and forth in the woof. It's called the woof, the, the warp and the woof, um, the, the up and the down of the weave. And all of a sudden, you start seeing something come into fruition. Now it's not just a bunch of loose individual threads. Now you've got a pattern that's starting to form. And using that imagery, I wanted to go to uh, the next slide. Um, we're going to get revved up here a little bit. I just want to remind you, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're just talking about three very simple ingredients. There is a, to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. To have a kingdom, you have to have the realm of his rule. In the case of our king, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and everything that he's created. In fact, they tell us that creation is still going out into space. It's still moving. From the inception, it's going out still. This God is so fantastic that the realm of his rule is so amazing that he's put us under his charge. He's put us under the banner of his love. The God that flicked the stars in space with his fingers is the God whose realm rules everything. If you get nervous about the political system in America, please don't. In the scope of things, it's a drop in the bucket at best. It's wimpy stuff. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Jesus. He's taking care of us, dudes. And dudettes. He's taking care of us. He's got it. He's shaking the earth. The norms are changing. The things that are secure are moving. What can be shaken will be shaken. Rejoice. We don't want it to be like this, do we? We don't want to be comfortable Americans. We want to be dangerous kingdom people. It's very different. Very different. We're not called to be Christians. We're called to be disciples. Jesus was not a Christian. He didn't tell us to make Christians. He is the king of the universe. He says, I want my image to be reflected in all of my creation, and I want disciples to be image bearers of me and replicate my life and restore my creation back to intended purpose. And we're called the subjects. We're called the ambassadors of the kingdom. We're the, we use the word church a lot, and it's funny because that word church conjures up so much in people's heads. There's so much static in the head around this word church. There is not an example in Scripture when the, when the church is referred to as a place. Not one. The church is always referred to as the people. Always. Do we have places? Of course. Do we meet together in places? Of course. But we don't go to church. We are the church. The minute you leave this, there's no church here. This is the building where the church gathers. Your home is where the church gathers. And I hope that our bars are where the church gathers. And the smoking lounges. Oh, careful now. Wherever you go, you make it holy as long as you stay holy. So if you've got a drinking problem, please don't go to the bars and say, this is where I'm called, you know. This is a different spirit we're talking about here. I told a bartender once, I said, you and I are just the same. He said, we are. I said, yeah, you and I both dispense spirits. 
I said, look at you. You love all those guys sitting at the bar. They're like your people. And you know their lives, and you, you care about them. I said, that's what I do. I've got a whole group of people. I care about them. I love them, and I, I dispense my spirits to them. <laughs> I feel different spirits. He was bushwhacked. I used to go and prepare for my Sunday sermons at a big bar in Kansas City. Just sit in there with all these guys. I had guys trying to recruit me to their weird stuff. And I would just sit there and study scripture and get ready for my Sunday sermons. And it was so much fun. Why? Because we're his ambassadors. We get to go everywhere. As long as sin's not abounding there in the sense of there's, you're not actively participating, you're going to change the atmosphere of that place. Amen? And we go together, too. It's important not to be alone in some of these places, just for a little disclaimer there. Next. I shared that I was with you guys just about four months ago. I was here in February. I shared the scripture. I want to share it again. The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go, I am sending you in to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out. You see what's going on? God says, I'm coming down to bring my people up. I'm sending you in to bring them out. What do you got? You got a tapestry. You got the heavenly threads crossing with earth's threads. You got the throne and the footstool that are intersecting, and in the center of it is something. What is the something that this intersection brings? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. This, I've come down to bring my people up. I'm sending you in to bring them out. See, if, if you take... The, the, if you take the vertical out of the equation, then you got humans doing a lot of good stuff. If you, got, if you take humans out of the equation, you got just God going up and down, right? Presence, you got presence. God, wherever God is, there, that's it. It's the presence of God. It's when the two come together. That's what we'll get into this in a little bit. I want to talk to you about why presence isn't the ultimate thing. Ooh, careful now. We're all about the presence of God, aren't we? We love the presence of God. We'd be lost without the presence of God. It's not just the manifest presence of God in meetings like this. Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. His presence is with you wherever you go. Okay, so we got the presence of God. Presence of God is never the goal. And we'll get into that. Don't get nervous. It's not a heresy quite yet. We might get there. Next, next slide. So this, God comes into a broken world, and he says to Moses, I want you to go and get my guys and bring them out. We're going to go on a journey now. And this journey is going to be a redemptive journey. Redemption is an amazing thing in Scripture. It's to buy back what was lost, to pay the price, to get that thing back to its intended owner and its intended purpose. It's to restore creation to everything that God intended it to be. You can even say that it was the introduction of sin that allowed man to see just how amazing God truly is. 
that this God could take the crazy stuff that humans have done, and he can take it, turn it, redeem it, reuse it again for people that are still stuck and lost. How many of you have had stuff in your life today that is so redeemed that you draw from that well whenever you're talking to people? Right? Whoa, it's so much fun. I was molested as a child twice. I've had stuff happen in my life. I told you last time, I was kicked out of four ministries during the charismatic and Jesus movement years. I mean, I've just, I've blown every possible thing. I've goofed off. I've done stupid stuff. I've made mistakes. I blew up a church. I mean, I'm skilled at things like this. And here I am at 64 years old, and I can say, I look back, I can't feel an ounce of pain. I don't feel any pain. I feel gratitude, and I feel the sense of being a son, being loved by my father, and all that stuff has been worked together for good because I love him. It worked together for good. Redemption is like that. It restores everything back. The presence comes. To Adam, becomes the living soul. He breathes. All he was before that was a bag of bones. Spirit inaugurates, boom. Now he got real life. This is different, though, when the presence of God came to the tabernacle. Why was the tabernacle and the temple different? Right? Prince of God came. kind of glory of God. Priests are falling all over the place. Bam, they're going backwards. They're trying to enter, they can't even enter. The glory of God is so strong that they can't get in there. Why is it that he says, no man can see God and live? And in the New Testament, when Jesus came, he said, if you don't see me, you'll die. Something changed. We changed covenants. We changed blood. The sacrifice changed. The presence of God couldn't, if I could say it this way very kindly, the presence of God couldn't go anywhere. It, it couldn't go into his people. In fact, the people said, hey, Moses, you talk to him. He scares us to death. He's kind of freaky. Thunder and lightning and things are shaking. We're going to hang out in our tents. You go talk to him. So he said, I will. And God met with Moses as a man speaks with his friend face to face. And then all of a sudden we had his change. Jesus came. And this little baby was conceived in a virgin. And all of a sudden, physical creation was impregnated by the Spirit of God. And inauguration happened and the Son of God was brought into the human plane. And redemption began. Now the presence is actually God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, radiating himself into a culture that was looking for him without realizing who he actually was. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. He said, you search the scriptures as you think in them as eternal life. The scriptures are bearing witness to me. But you don't get it. Because you're so caught up in your religious tradition. He says to his guys numerous times, I'm going to die. I'm going to go. They rebuked him for it. So what do you do? He dies. He rose from the dead. He went to heaven. He entered the heavenly temple and he presented the Father, the eternal blood of the covenant. And the reason we know that the Father accepted that, that blood once and for all, there was no more sacrifice to be made. 
Once, once that was done, we know he accepted it. Why? Because he sent the Holy Spirit. If that blood of Jesus hadn't been enough, that's the Spirit of the Lord would never have been sent. So here comes the Spirit of God. The Jews believed it was gonna, that, that God's presence was going to be in their temple. But he didn't go to a place that was made with human hands this time. He went to a place that was created by his own life and his own spirit. And he impregnated his own people. Surprised everybody because the Jews were there to celebrate in the temple. Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord misses the temple and hits the disciples. How rude of him. To completely miss this and smack this. These guys, these rascals. And so what we can say is, I think, it's not enough for the presence of God to simply come and be present somewhere. The presence of God has to come in and inaugurate life to create the image of Christ. That's what the intersection of the tapestry is. It's when heaven comes up and down, us humans go in and out, we intersect with the heart and the will of God. What happens is the image of Christ begins to get restored a, in the human heart, B, into our families, C, into the community, into the nations of the earth. This is the mandate of God to his church. We call it discipleship. Okay, we, we get words and we, they turn into buzzwords and they lose their meaning. Okay, words like evangelism, words like discipleship, words like church. We've got to recover these words with the meaning that God really intended. Discipleship isn't just an old guy with a young guy or, or you know, one-on-one. Most, most discipleship in Scripture is done in groups. It's done by doing life together. It's not by having coffee on a Saturday morning with a few guys. That works. It's fine. But there's a broader context for it. And the context is that you learn to be like Jesus through imitation. Being imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul said. So the, the way that we dispense life, I've, I've resigned from all my roles. I stand, I sit on no boards anymore except one. I don't have any organizational responsibilities. About five years ago, the Lord says, step off your father now, and you're to, you're to get the sons ready for what's coming on the earth. And you're going to do that by hanging out with them. If they call you and say, I need, I need to hang out, you're going to hang out. We'll sit at night with a bunch of us around the fire, and we'll just do life together. We'll just talk. I'll fly anywhere in the world to be with my guys. If they call, I come. By guys, I mean guys and gals and couples. I'm really committed to the marriages and our guys. I'm really committed to raising their kids with them. I know them by name. They're my friends. And now these kids are turning into university students. And I get to pray for them and bless them and send them off into the purposes of God. I'm not perfect. But they get to see somebody committed to them. They get to emulate they get to see me make mistakes. They get to see me be honest. They get to see me be happy. They get to see my wife and I in our marriage. And they get to see how I've raised my kids and grandkids. And the family of God's replicated its redemption. Okay? Let's keep that one up there. Oh. No. Yeah. We, we're, I'm hearing this. I hear this all the time. God's doing a new thing. Actually, not really. God's doing a really old thing. There's something weird about saying, yeah, you know, 
what my parents and the generations were, you know, they kind of they were fooling around a little bit. God's doing a new thing now. I can feel it in the way it's said sometimes. Even here prophetically, God's doing a new thing. Okay, new flowers, but it's an old tree, people. It's got a really old root system. And it's the continuity of the life of God from the inception of creation all the way through today. There's a continuity that's going all the way through. The root is Jesus. The trunk is the church. The apostolic foundations God laid. And all the generations that have come since are still coursing forth into, into the future to reveal the Son of God and to fulfill God's promises to take the earth and bring him back under his full control again. Amen? So what we see are, are the blossoms. Yeah, amen. And then those kind of fall, you know, what was happening five years ago is a little different. So those blossoms fell off. Now we've got some new blossoms. Yes, in that sense, God's doing a new thing. Hallelujah. We've got fresh flowers. It's spring now. We've got new stuff happening. But it's the root that we care about. It's that we're part of a healthy root, a continuity. If we keep cutting off the branches and keep saying we're doing a new thing, and you keep, we keep cutting ourselves off from the history, Americans have trouble with this. It's hard for us Americans. Most Americans left somewhere to come here. They left family. They changed gears. They left cultures, and they started over and afresh. So one level, that was awesome, right? Some need to start over. Some were really ready to leave their families. And some continued their traditions and continued con contact with folks in the old countries. Great. But we have a hard time understanding continuity. And what happens when the generations get broken? When we don't understand that God's been actively working. I'm going to go through the last 50 years with you. And I want to show you something. That God has not stopped. But if we keep giving the energy to the youth, we're going to give away the power and the presence and the discipleship making to orphans. And slaves. Not sons. I love the youthful energy in the church today. It's awesome. And I'm going to talk about the millennials in just a little bit. They're a gift from God to the church. But you cannot entrust the weight of the kingdom to a 20 and 30 year old. I'm sorry. We, we become the launching pad for their lives. But we don't let go of them. We don't say, yeah, go do your thing. God is calling us into a synergy, a partnership, bi-generational, tri-generational affection where the sons and the fathers and the mothers and the daughters are interconnected and are doing life together and then we begin to release our sons and our daughters into the ways of God incrementally. It took Paul 20 years to say to Timothy, guard the deposit that I've given to you. It was the, it was the fall of the year. He was, wrote 2 Timothy. He entrusted Timothy with all that he had given him and all that they had done and all the church planning and, and all of the, the battles that they had fought and all of the imprisonments and all of the boats sinking under them and all the stones flying at them. He finally said in the fall of the year, I entrusted to you my son. In the spring, he was dead. Paul, or Timothy and Titus and others, took up the legacy. It's a pattern God wants to reestablish in the church. Amen? 
So God's doing an old thing, new blossoms on an old tree. Okay, let's keep going. I'm getting a little carried away. Okay, we're going to start dating ourselves now. How many of you remember and actively participated in the early days of the charismatic movement? Oh, okay, we're dating ourselves. This is great. Those were crazy days. Crazy days. They were so weird that we didn't know what was going on on the earth. The church had come through the, through the war. The economy was booming globally. The broken European nations in Japan and Asia were being rebuilt. And the boom is on. And the church was growing in some ways in, in America. Uh, but it was extremely conservative, if I can put it that way. It, there, there wasn't much in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Not much at all. And all of a sudden, a guy named Dennis Bennett, an Episcopal priest, gets nuked by the Lord, 1960. And he created controversy. Did you know that division can be from God? You know, we're, we're so committed to unity, aren't we? We all are. We want the unity in the family of God. God's also committed division. There's a very interesting scripture that says, there must be divisions amongst you so that those that are approved of God might be made manifest. Oof. God actually uses the separation of brethren to show what he's blessing and what he's not. Doesn't mean he doesn't love everybody. Doesn't mean he doesn't love. But what he's trying to do is move the church up the trunk and up the branches to bring that new life we're looking for. And what stopped it historically has always been the traditions of men. It's when the traditions of the church trump the presence of God and the active reformation of Jesus in the midst of his people. So he'll go to war for us. He loves us so much he won't let us stay the same. So in the 60s we saw this charismatic movement. It was interesting because it started with a lot of the mainline churches. It was the Anglican, the, the Lutherans even got involved. God even touched a Lutheran, if you can imagine. The Methodists were getting nuked. The Baptists started a whole thing called the Baptist Charismatic Conference. That was like heresy. In those days, it was so volatile that if you, if you spoke in tongues or you believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you were literally, by some of these traditions, were deemed as as being an active agent of the enemy. It was that, it was that crazy. I had one pastor say to me, he said, um, this is all of the devil. He, he came to talk to me about staying in the position I was in with my wife. We love you, you're doing a great job, but you're hanging out with charismatics. And we want you to sign a paper saying, you'll stay with us, but you'll never fraternize with charismatics. I said, so, wait a minute now. So unity now is around doctrinal statements, not around the person of Christ. He said, no, no, we're not saying that. I said, this is exactly what you're saying. You're asking me to cut off brothers that Jesus loves 
so that I confirm and affirm and conform to your theology. I was, I was 24 years old, wet behind the ears. But I knew enough to know, you don't do that. So he said, fine, you're fired. I said, thank you. Thank you, you're doing me a great favor. I, I said, can I pray for you? He said, please don't. I said, you know what? When you walk out of the door, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for you anyway. And I'm going to ask the Spirit of the Lord to visit you. He did. Some years later, it took a while. There was holy division in the church. God was coming into with the pharisaical spirit of the, of the church of our day. And he was saying, enough pharisaism. I want freedom of my spirit again. I'm tired of people being conformed to church polity. Conformed to the do's and don'ts of legalistic Christianity. I want the breath of my spirit to come in and blow out the gaskets. Amen? Oh, it was nuts. Next one. The 60s were turbulent. Churches were splitting. Pastors were getting fired for coming into the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders were starting to happen. Francis McNutt and all these different guys were getting into healing rooms, and we were learning about healing, and Melody Land Christian Center in Anaheim, California was kind of coming on the scene. And I mean, it's like there were these little hot spots that started happening, and, and it was kind of unled. And no one knew kind of where it was going and what was happening, and the debates were on, and we were fighting with each other. It was kind of fun. And really painful. Really painful. And then lo and behold, culture was changing at the same time. And man, the, the 60s were turbulent and this whole new generation came up. And they were called, you know, they were called freaks pretty much. And out of the freaks came a subset called the Jesus Movement. In the late 60s, into, well, all the way through the 70s, we have this thing called the Jesus Movement. And Jesus became the center piece of our conversation. Okay? We had the Spirit in the 60s. We had a reemphasis of Jesus in the 70s. And that was fun stuff. And Jesus, again, was challenging the traditions of men. Challenging this idea. People were not being let in the doors because they had long hair. I mean, how stupid is that? But it was a real issue. How you looked, how you smelled, what you wore. The one church that I attended for about four years, uh, one of the elders decided that they had new carpet. They can't have hippies walking on their carpet because everyone knows that the oil from the feet of a human being destroys carpet. So he puts this big sign outside and says, absolutely no bare feet in this place. Pastor rolls up, sees that sign, takes the sign, walks, starts the service, didn't even do worship, just started the service, said, okay, we're going to start now. He says, see this sign? It says, absolutely nobody in this room is allowed here because, and he said, he cracked it over his knee and he said, he threw the sign away and he said, we will never do this here. You're all invited to the family of God. Freaks flooded the place. <laughs> flooded it. Every day they were on the beaches and others were just literally walking down Corona Del Mar, walking down Laguna Beach, walking down the beaches just talking about Jesus. And people were coming to the Lord. Every night, 
there was Bible study. On Saturdays were concerts. For years, people were getting, coming to Jesus at, at those concerts on Saturday nights. People were leading people to Jesus. They weren't coming to church and hearing salvation sermons. They were seeing a changed life, and they were being changed by changed lives. Because somebody wasn't just worried about gathering the church. They were worried about scattering the church. And a scattered church is the most dangerous one. I don't mean disunified. I mean moving out. Church. We have a lot of new babies. We have new churches. We have new worship. The whole modern day, you know what we do up here with all this? It all got started in the 70s. Maranatha was the first publishing house of truly Christian, modern worship music. And it turned into this amazing thing. Got bought out by Gospel Light, and they got bought out by somebody else, and you know, all, all the music industry is crazy. But it was, it was a new season, and you, you could be driving down the road, and you would see guys along the road wanting to hitchhike. You always pick people up. We didn't have fear in those days. We didn't say, don't pick them up. No, we said, ah, that's an assignment from God. We'd pick, we'd pick people up. I knew more guys who came to Jesus by someone picking them up on the side of the road. It was so cool. We had all of our services in the summer. When the weather was good, we'd meet in the park. We had six, 700 of us just sitting in a park. Big old beautiful trees, the rogue rivers going by, sun's beating down. The osprey would come around our services, and they would just circle, and then they would dive and get the trout in the, in the river and come up. And, oh, it's glorious. And every week, people came to Jesus. And we'd say, how many of you have come to Jesus just now in the last one hour sitting here? Great. Turn around, follow me. We're going down the road. We're going to have a baptism. Go, psh. Duck them under. So your sins now are going down to Gold River, Oregon. They're going out into the sea. They'll be removed far as the east from the west. Your new creature in Christ now receive the Holy Spirit. Bam! It was, it was wild. Stop. We did a baptism in a nudist colony. We did midnight baptisms. The big deal at our community house was the minute someone gets saved, just run them down the river and get them baptized. Two in the morning, psh, down we go. Well, I, I did say call me when that happens. So they started calling me anyway. So two, three in the morning, I'd be called. Down to the river. Almost drowned one night. I slipped on the boat ramp. Had a big dude. His name is Father Son Holy. Psh, poop. I went out, and I'm going down the Rogue River at three in the morning in April. It was so cold. And he, this guy and I about died. We're grabbing for branches on this side. And all he could hear in the background is the guys worshiping. And they were going, love you, Jesus. And then it was... <laughs> Where'd they go? <laughs> we disappeared. Those were nutty days. Thread three. Okay, we're talking about the threads. The threads of God coming this way. Man, I tell you, the 80s were insane. In 1976, a guy named Ralph Winter came up with this proposition or presupposition that God didn't just want to meet individuals and lead individuals to Christ. He wanted whole people groups. And that it was the right of all peoples to hear the gospel, ethne. And we started talking about ethnicities. And it morphed into this idea of, where are these people? And then they started coming up with this idea of the 1040 window. And if you look at the latitudes of 10 and 40, and it cuts across the poor of the poor, uh, the most devastated of the devastated, and the world caught this, the church worldwide caught this idea of going to where 
Jesus isn't in the sense of where he, he's not present with, with churches. Uh, they were unevangelized. There was distance, uh, lots of poverty. And the church m- mobilized. It was awesome. We had unreached people groups. We had the 1040 window. And out of it came all these international prayer movements. I'll never forget in the 80s when uh, God started smacking uh, his love on the little country of Holland, the Netherlands. And one day I was meeting with a bunch of these intercessors and I got a phone call from the Germans. And the German intercessors called and said, we're under complete and total conviction by the Holy Spirit. We want to meet you at an Arnhem, which is at the border town between uh, Essen, between Germany and Holland. We're going to meet you at the border. And we have some reconciliation we want to do. So the Dutch and the Germans, who've never gotten along real well, met at the border, and it was unbelievable. They, they were weeping, asking forgiveness for the war crimes, for what happened to the Jews. Uh, the Dutch tried to protect them. The Jews, of course, were killing, or the Germans, of course, were killing them. All of that just created all this animosity. There was this sense that the realm of God's rule was now a lot bigger than the church, that God was pushing out the boundaries of everything we did. All of a sudden, people were going to the nations. You're, you're, did you know that there was no such thing as, as uh, short-term missions back in the 70s, 60s, 70s? Mission boards prevented it. They would never let a short-term missionary. You had to go through Bible college, and then you had to do all sorts of hoop jumping in order to go. And I remember when the first team came from Wheaton College to Japan, my dad was one of the first guys to receive them. And the rest of the missionary community said, you're crazy. These kids are just green behind the ears. Don't receive them. But dad said, no, I think they're sent by God. They were. And it just started this whole train of young people starting. And now it's gone berserk. By the time we get to the 80s, it's like everyone can go. Prices came down. Travel changed. Everything's borders changed. All of a sudden, it was okay. And anybody can go. We had the kids gone. We had... Small twin families going off. It all became a free-for-all. It was like an adventuristic thing. Walls are down, let's go. Berlin came down, everything changed. Not only did it change in Eastern Europe, but it began to let us see there's not a wall standing that can stand before God. So we started paying for what they call the bamboo curtain. We started praying for the Muslim world. We started to understand the walls are coming down. We have a legacy, guys. God revisited us by the Spirit in the 60s. He came and reemphasized his son in the 70s. He's, he was anxious that we don't just hold it in, but that we take it to the nations. And all of a sudden, what used to be the, the force and the field switched. The western force became secondary to what had been the field. Now the field, now Africa and Asia are becoming the, the force. And today, way more missionaries, way more church planning is being done out of, the, out of what they call the global south uh, than there is from the western nations. Way more. We need them to come to us. Amen? That really offends some Americans. What? Africans here? Asians coming to us? Absolutely. Next one. Thread four. Decade four, the 90s, okay, who was around in the 90s and remembers, we were actively following Jesus in the 90s. Most of us by now, have we caught up with most of you? 
<laughs> we're we're uh, vacuuming people in as we go here. Fascinating because all of this movement towards the nations and the realm of his rule was also influencing our thinking about not just the nations but about all the domains of society and the idea that the kingdom comes to domains, comes to sectors of society, that God wants to redeem science. God wants to redeem education. God wants to redeem business. God wants to redeem media and arts. All of that began to kind of swirl in those days. Then by the 90s, it was taking real form. We had, we had uh, marketplace ministries starting up in the early 90s. Uh, a guy named Ray Bakke became really well-known for what was called Urban Missions. Urban Missions in the 80s morphed into city reaching in the early 90s thanks to a book by John Dawson called Taking Our Cities for God. And that morphed by the mid-90s into what we now call city transformation. Can you see that God's been busy? Can you see that we're not doing a new thing? <laughs> not really. This stuff's being done. It's got new pants on now. Because we're, we're in a, we are in a new day, and so there's this continually evolving of it without changing the core of who we are. We, we don't change the root system, but we change, you know, we change the flowers. The leaves fall off and have to come back on every year. We are a seasonal family. A lot of emphasis in the 90s on the intercessors and the prophets. My goodness, the prophetic. How many of you are around for that whole prophetic thing? Bob Jones, Paul Kane, the Kansas City prophets. Yeah. Woo, that was fun stuff. Rick Joyner, I mean, the, the, the thing goes on and on. Names, we could use names. Some blessed, blessed guys. And it had a season, and that season changed. And it left the church both blessed and confused because... It produced, I mean, what are you going to do when you're in a room and the guy sitting next to you says, you can smell roses now. Psh, start smelling roses. And then he says, now all the windows are closed and we're going to sense the breeze of God now. Psh, here comes this wind and the room, everything's shot. Psh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when people start walking in the third heaven and get revelations from God that are just so fantastic and blowing your mind? What happens is you take it from the Lord, you discern if it's from the Lord, you take it when it is, but you, you, you never, you only smell the perfume, you don't drink it. We made heroes out of the people in the 80s and 90s who should never have been heroes. They were servants of the Lord. This is true for all of history. Historically, we have to learn to quit making heroes out of individuals. When you have prominent leaders like Bill Johnson and guys, there's so many good men and women of God that God's given us. Never emulate them. Learn what you can from them, but never let them become to you what only God can become for you. Ever. We love these guys. They're a gift to the whole church. They're doing stuff globally. Well, what's happening in Japan, some of the big ministries are coming in, and the Japanese, if you don't know Jap Japanese, this is what they do. They copy everything. 
They copied our cars and made them better. They copied our electronics and made them better. They copied, they're trying to copy the church, and it's not working. You can't copy because the church isn't form. The church is genetic. You have to get a gene from Jesus, and it has to go into your culture and make it what Jesus wants it to be in the culture. You can't take an American gene and transplant it in Germany. It's what happened after the war. My dad's generation took American Western cultural Christianity and brought it to Japan, and they're still trying to do it. And we're saying, time out. Excuse us for what our dads did. We loved our dads, and we love you guys, but you know what? God's not on this now. God wants to birth his spirit in you so that Jesus comes forth in a way that you never dreamed possible. It's going to smell and look like heaven. It's going to have the kingdom mark all over it, and it's going to be suspiciously Japanese. (laughs) Structures that are Western corporate structures in a culture that's a family culture. Nuts! Intercessors and prophets. We, we, all of a sudden, I mean, you could hardly find a town or a city in America, even in Europe, where pastors weren't finding each other. Starting to meet, starting to pray. Pastors' prayer retreats started up. Churches finding each other across boundaries. It was amazing, guys. It was cool. Ed Savosa and I were working together. We were in multiple cities around the world together. We saw pastors coming together, you know, intercessors coming together. We're prayer walking streets. It was cool stuff. It was really great. I'm sitting in Pittsburgh, and I hear this this little thought came to my head. It was the Lord, and he said, the church the way she is cannot reach the city the way she dreams. Oh, I said, oh, so what are we doing here then? (laughs) I got deflated. And I felt encouraged by the Lord over time. I felt like the Lord just said, I'm bringing reformation to my church. So the unity that you have now is not organic, it's functional. You're gathering around events, but you're not gathering around your immense, deep, unchallengeable love for one another. Still exists in churches in our cities, and I'll get into that in just a little bit. It's changing, praise God. It is changing. But functional unity will never bring the presence of God and the image of Christ to a city. It can't just be about functioning around events. It's when men and women of God, leaders in a city, mandated to that geography, begin to fall in love with each other, and they begin to lay down before God together and embrace the city together and get the word of God for the city. What we have now is multiple churches getting the word of God for their church, meeting together once or twice a week, or once or twice a month, and praying together and blessing the city, and that's great. That's a great start. It's not enough. And this isn't organizational unity, guys. We're never going to be one. We'll always have a multiplicity of parts. Amen? We need the distinctives. They're beautiful. The traditions reflect. But there's going to be a day God is moving us to where Jesus actually speaks to the church in the city and they begin to move out together. A lot has to change before that happens. But we're getting there. Economy has to change in the church. The way we do business, the way we look at each other, the way we deploy the church into all aspects of life has to change. And God's committed to that for us. Amen. He'll walk us through that.
one things that we did there at the end of the 90s was we started really, if you went to a pastor's conference in the late 90s, here's what you'd hear. Two things. What am I doing? <laughs> Seriously. What am I doing? And what is the church again? Because most pastors and leaders were getting involved in church work. And they got disconnected or feeling disconnected from a sense of engaged in the kingdom enterprise. Now they were just doing churchy stuff. They were running churches. And all that comes with it, and all the boards, and all of this, and all of that, and all the demands, and all the needs, and all the vision, and all the, and it was driving them insane. And they were saying, wait, this can't be what it's about. They were losing their marriages. Their kids were leaving home, mad at their families, not connected to God. We had a horrible track record with our own kids in the 80s and 90s. We had brokenness break out in the church. And yet we were shocked when pastors were falling morally. Why? Why would we be shocked? No one's walking uprightly and living open. They become stars. They became heroes. They were protected from reality because everyone looked to them as the answer for everything. And God said, I'm sorry, I'm not taking this anymore. And we saw things begin to fall, begin to break up, exposure, the lid got taken off. And here's the beauty of redemption. A lot of those guys have been restored to God again. Amen? And we've learned and we're learning that nobody gets a pass on walking in openness before God. Nobody. I don't care who you are, I don't care what you lead, I don't care how much money you got, I don't care how much experience you have, you and me are always candidates for more of Jesus and to become profoundly more human all the time. Now, a funny thing happened at the end of that decade going into the, the 2000s, thread five. Mike, how much time? Should I quit now? How are we doing on time? Give me a number. Ten? Give me a number. Between one and whatever. Fifteen? <laughs> okay. So, are we okay, guys? You okay? So by 2000, a funny thing happened in the fall of 1999. Two prayer movements got started in the same week. 24-7 prayer and IHOP, International House of Prayer. Same week. Both got started. Unbeknownst to each other, they didn't know it. It's funny because I was involved in IHOP at the time when it got started. I Three years later, I got involved with 24-7 prayer. It was amazing. So much fun. Crazy days. And it led us really into the, the fifth thread, which was a revelation of the Father. Because the sons of the 60s and 70s, were and sons and daughters, were becoming fathers and mothers now in the kingdom. And so this morph into bi-generational preparation of God to become fathers and mothers in the family of God was on. It was on. There's a prophecy that came up at the end of the 70s that said that those who were faithful to continue on after the Jesus movement, those sons of the Jesus movement would become the fathers of the next Jesus movement. I took that to heart. I remember that, and I said to the Lord, count me in. I want to be part of that. 
And I think we're kind of there. My generation is now in father mode. And we're taking on this generation as it's coming through. And God's given us a gift of the millennials. They're a beautiful generation. They're much like the hippies in many ways. A lot of similarities. Justice, mercy, live off the land, environmental sensitivities. I mean, on and on it goes. Love community. Um, don't like structure. Uh, um, and they're also orphaned. <laughs> There's a real orphan spirit in the millennials today. And so it's imperative that we embrace them. It's imperative that the church lead the way in embracing the millennials so that they don't remain orphans or slaves, but they become sons. The 90s was huge. I'm going to jump it. I'm going to go to the next real quick. So what we're, what we're looking to do, guys, is say now that we've had five decades of the spirit of Jesus, the beautiful sense of his realm of his rule, beginning to reimagine church. Because in the 90s, it was, what, kind of, what is the church? Is it emergent church? Is it organic church? Is it simple church? Is it, and we came up with all these terms, and we had books that were being written all over the place about what church is. And everyone had kind of a piece of it. But now, we've got to get it from God to put this stuff together. To live under the auspices of the joy of the Father's love. That's why this thing with the Father in the 2000s was so critical, guys. Because what happens when you fall in love with the Father is your own works start to cease. The energy to do stuff your way stops. And nothing matters anymore but to only do what you see the Father doing. And no longer do we run the church with organizational principles only. We begin running the, the people of God we, we begin running through family organics, life on life, word and spirit together. I, and I ask pastors this all the time. Tell me the 10 or 12 people that you actually meet with all the time, you do life with, and you're passing life on to each other. So what happens with pastors and leaders is they get this commitment to the whole thing. Rather than incrementally do a few who do a few who do a few who do a few. That's how the early church was built. Amen. So the reformation of church is happening and God's pulling these threads through to return everything back to the Lord. Just three or four really quick things I want to pass on to you. So where are we headed? What's the journey now? Where is all this going? God's moving us from Christians to disciples. We talked about that. Image bearers. The idea of the image of Christ is just that we carry his image and we pass it on to people. There is a Big deconstruction going on right now. There's three things that happen. God's deconstructing everything. <laughs> everything. In order to reconstruct it. In order to transform creation again. So if you're feeling under a lot of pressure these days, welcome to the club. If the stuff that you do is kind of shake, rattle, and rolling, Hallelujah. Rejoice, your redemption draws near. If you're looking for a nice, sweet American life, ditch it. It's not worth it. If you want to be a kingdom disciple, you're going to attract trouble wherever you go. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to make trouble. And it's going to make you like Jesus. Amen? 
Can't be wimps anymore, guys. You gotta grow up. Every member of the family of God has to be embedded and deployed into the family enterprise. We're, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own choosing. Leaders are called to equip the saints with the work of the ministry and deploy you into your thing. I've asked business leaders all over the world, are you church or no? And a lot of them say, oh, I don't know, I go to church, but I don't feel like I'm part of it. We've got Christians around the world who are disenfranchised from the family of God. And they're disenfranchised because they've been used for the church's purposes. We'll use you to put it on our building committee. We need you to have donate funds so that we can build the church. We need you for this. We need you for that. We have to stop needing people or using people for the church's need. Our whole goal is to make them like Jesus. So everything we do is to help them live, do life with them so they can replicate it. We need the business guys and the professionals to know, to be discipled in Christ so they can take it into the marketplace, into the educational halls, into media. My son's in media in Hollywood. I'm working with him, you know. He's got stuff he's going <laughs> Can you imagine working in Hollywood? He's a set design artist. They, the stuff they run into is amazing. They're learning to be Jesus there. Then I'm going to end on this. Remember I said earlier that God's teaching us, he's moving us from gathering to scattering. There's, there's a, he had to do that in Jerusalem. Remember when the church was getting a little too cozy and he sent, sent a dispersion of the church into the nations. There's a sense in which we have to be really committed to go and take Jesus into all of life. Let me put it this way. We are building, we have built the church in America around places. Now, you know that I've been involved with IHOP and I've been involved and am involved still with 24-7 prayer and I love it for Jesus. But we've got building and prayer rooms. And we've got an international house of prayer and we've got 24-7 prayer rooms. My fear for us is that we start imagining that you can actually create a place called a house of prayer. Now, Mike Pickle is a friend of mine, and I'll tell you what, Mike never envisioned that they would replicate buildings where people would come and just do prayer in those buildings. That was not Mike's idea at all. It was to create a generator, a furnace of prayer. Amen? But what's happened and is happening, if we're not careful, is we start defining who is the house of prayer? The whole church. The whole priesthood. You are the house of prayer, and you got wheels on your feet, and you take it wherever you go. And to confine it to a place and say, that's the house of prayer. I know more people have tried to start a house of prayer, and it hasn't worked. It's frustrated. Why? Because you're already the house of prayer. Let's act like it. Let's take the prayer. Let's take the voice and the word of God, and let's take it into all of culture. Amen? Amen? Houses of prayer, prayer rooms, they're fine. Just don't build a temple around it. Just don't make it more than it is. And make sure that we're equipping people to go out and take the glory of God wherever we go. So much more. Let's stand and pray. Let's get cozy. Is that all right?
I get nervous when Christians are separated from each other. Let's, let's move in. We're a small crowd. So let's get a little closer together. Come on, go across. Come on. Get out of the church thing. Just churchy thing. There you go. Now it looks a lot better. Huddle in the mud puddle, people. Come on, you guys. Come on in. Huddle, huddle. Draw in. We'll, we'll stick around and pray for anyone that wants prayer today. Let's, let's do this. Let's make a covenant in our hearts to let God bring reformation to us and to our world. It might be in the business world or the educational world, church world. I just ask you to make a an invitation to the Lord tonight to say, mess with me. Mess with me where you need to. Break me from any traditions of men, any preconceived ideas about the future. And let me be at rest in my sonship in you. Let it not matter anymore to me. How many of you are worried about the future? Seriously, how many are struggling with the future? Okay? Thank you. Thanks for being honest. In the name of Jesus, receive the faith to believe that your life is not your own. He literally has your, plant, your life mapped out. Good works determine beforehand that you should walk in them. How many of you are worried about money tonight? got some financial stuff going on. I really felt it when I was standing up here. There was just some money fears. He is Jehovah Jireh. He's your provider. You might go down to nothing. So what? You still got him. He's not like your earthly parents. He's not like those that let you down. He's not. Don't project that on him. He loves you and he's going to provide for you. How many are in the middle of some relational difficulties you have no way through? You can't see your way through them. Relational stuff, it's not working out. Right. In the name of Jesus, he is our shalom who makes the two, one new man in Christ. That's your birthright. Wait it out. Be humble. And let God bring the two parties together. Bless your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. Bless that brother that's an idiot. Eh? A lot of brothers and sisters are just idiots. Bless them. Amen. So in the name of Jesus, receive tonight everything that you need for life and godliness. It's your birthright. Be at rest in your future. Be at rest in your provision. Realize that what he's begun, he completes. Realize that you cannot figure out the future. You take his hand and you walk with him every day. And you learn to walk out the integrity of the common life. You learn to mow grass. You learn to walk a dog. You learn to bless a neighbor. You just do life and invite him, his presence into it. This is about the image of God being released into the tapestry of your life. All the threads that have gone in, that Christ would be all in all, that 
He would be the center of everything, that by him and through him in your life and our lives, all things would hold together and consist. So we bless you with joy out of it all. To walk with a little skip in your step, a sense of he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. And no good thing will he withhold from us. He's doing a work at the rock, you guys. God is working here in a powerful way. He's going to bring you through some reformation things. He's going to realign some things here. But you know what? He'll lead you. <laughs> He'll get you there. He'll get us there. Father, we just say we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Spirit. Thanks for the realm of your rule. Thanks for Father, and thanks for the people of God. We're so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.